Welcome, our world listeners. I'm Captain Jake Moraldi. Today on the podcast, we'll be talking to Max Brooks, the author of World War Z and Harlem Hellfighters, about creativity and, more importantly, standing up for those creative ideas that come across your desk. As always, the opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the respective participants and do not constitute the position of the United States government. Well, Max Brooks, welcome back to the podcast. I appreciate you taking the time to come back and talk to us again. Today, you talked about championing creativity. And I kind of want to lead off with, with just the concept of creativity. It's what we talked about in our last podcast. But refresh our listeners again as to what, what's so important about the concept of, of creativity. <clears throat> well, uh, creativity is, is going to be critical in the wars of today uh, because everything changes so quickly. I mean, it used to be that wars... You knew who the enemy was. You knew the weapon systems, their doctrine. You could train for it and prepare for it. Now it's improv theater. Uh, literally, the technology, the players, uh, the rules, everything is going to change day to day. And so you need to be flexible. Uh, you need to take whatever doctrine you were under and throw that book away. What interests me about the, the creativity concept is it's something that, like I said a second ago, that we talked about in this podcast, and you see it everywhere across all spheres, yeah. all domains of life. Absolutely everything talks about how the world is changing quickly, and we have to be innovative. And, and it's to the point that it's almost a cliche that we have yes. to be innovative and creative. What you talked about today, though, and I think is is extremely interesting, is that that type of thinking in and of itself maybe is rewarded, but that it's not necessarily... The championing it, being the second right. to, to, to come is not necessarily rewarded. Why, why is that? That's what? exactly right. Well, <clears throat> I mean, I think it's, it's hardwired into human DNA to, to be a follower. I think we, it goes back to our earliest beginnings that our, our little tribes of weak, you know, hairy homo sapiens cowering on the plains of Africa, uh, all we had to survive was, was the group. And if you bucked the group, you could all get killed. And so I, th I think that fitting in isn't just about being popular and cool. I mean, it really goes deep, deep down in, into our gut that we have to fit in. And, and to buck that, I think it takes a tremendous amount of courage. So the idea there is that it's a, it's a biological or psychological reaction that's survival-based. It's just like any other survival yeah. instinct. It's right? exactly survival instinct, and it, it, it bleeds into everything we do uh, in every walk of life. We envision ourselves as, as modern beings that potentially are above or, or able to or able to overcome those sort of base instinctual <laughs> yeah. sorts of things. So why why is it so difficult for us either rationally or through some process to, to overcome this sort of basic biological background? I, I, I think I think rational will never trump irrational. You know, I literally I think if if we got a group of people in a theater and, and, and I gave them a very rational discussion about how nothing in the theater is flammable and there could never be a fire and then they were safe. And literally, if somebody in the back of the room said, oh, crap, there's a fire, I guarantee you some people would bolt for the door. Uh, there was an interesting psychological study done, not by a professor, not by a PhD, by Andy Kaufman, the old comedian, where he paid, I think it was like 30 people, to run through a zoo and shout, the lions are out of their cages. And he started a riot because people didn't, they weren't rational. They didn't look around and say, I don't see any lions. They went, oh my God, there's a lion! So fear, it's just, it's a powder keg. So in, in the context of the army, say, in an organizational context, not necessarily the army, how does that, how does that play out? What are those fears predicated 
on? Because it isn't a lion eating you or, <clears throat> right. or your tribe leaving you. What are what are those fears based on? It's it's um well it's social ostracization if that's a real word. Uh, but yeah, being being isolated that's a huge deal. Nobody wants to be the person sitting alone eating at the dining hall. You know that's tremendous. Uh, in fact, that sometimes psychologically can trump physical danger. You know, in our Civil War, what they used to do in the North was make sure that every unit was guys from the same town. So that way, you could never break and run because then you could never go home again. So these guys would rather take a mini ball in the face than risk being shamed by their comrades. Yeah, I've seen similar things with ancient Greek warfare where they'd pull. You know, all the Athenians yeah. from a certain diem would all be lined up together in line, and you couldn't run because of because of that same factor. So, it's it's interesting that that, that continues to go even today. And there's no there's no reward for speaking up in in any culture, in any culture, in any system, in any culture. Nobody ever gets a medal for saying, "Wow, you know, you really you didn't let this go. You kept fighting for it, and and it happened. And, and good for you. And we should all take a you know, let's all look at John and and remember his example. Nobody ever does that. It's your talk today was interesting, and I think this discussion of, of championing a new idea or a different way of doing things uh, is is interesting, and that reminds me of a podcast that Maxim, uh, Malcolm Gladwell did, where he is talking about professional basketball mm. and how it is, due to the physics, more effective to shoot a free throw underhanded. Really? But that no one will do it because they look stupid. Oh. Um, and, and I think it. I think that his discussion of that with the one guy, the one professional basketball player who ever shot underhanded and made, you know, 95% of his free throws. And this are, are a pretty good, good corollary. How do you see that kind of thinking or that kind of rationale or, or irrationality playing out in a, in a military context? Well, I think from a military standpoint, there has to be more leeway for, uh, creative thinking and, and more championing of thoughts. I mean, at my talk today, I brought in all these army technical manuals. These are, these are not academic treatises or someplace from Berkeley, California. This is the army writing their own books on how to fight guerrilla warfare that the army didn't read. And, and I'll bet you anything, it's because nobody wanted to champion them because they were unpopular ideas in an army based on, you know, conventional tanks in West Germany. So aside from sort of the negative things, the, the manuals in Vietnam and, and those sorts of things that we have failed to champion, you did also highlight in your talk today something that was successfully championed oh, yeah, and no. had a, a significant impact on, on the army. Oh, the, the army. The army is an amazing innovator. When people get behind ideas in the army, things take off and then actually lead the country, lead the rest of the country. I was talking about the Choctaw Code Talkers. Before World War II and World War I, two Choctaws came up with the idea of using their language as a code. And as heroic as they were for that, it was the chain of command, a bunch of white guys, to get behind Indians who were not even treated legally as American citizens. That took some balls to say, no, 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 these guys are onto something and we're going to champion it. And we got a code that worked all the way up through World War II. You see it with technology. I talked about the M1 carbine rifle. Uh, all these great innovations that come out of nowhere uh, aren't just because of the creator. They're because of people behind them saying this works the the m1 stuff is fascinating and if you if you would could you kind of relate the yeah. that whole story the m1 carbine was invented by a bootlegging murderer doing 30 years in prison for shooting a deputy sheriff and it was the warden of the prison that saw his schematics and let him build a prototype in the prison shop under supervision 
and then had to tell the prison board, because the prison board was furious. How are you letting a, this killer make a gun? He's going to escape with it. He told the prison board, if he escapes with that gun, I will serve the rest of his sentence. And that gave us one of the most successful firearms the Army has ever had. That kind of courage to champion that creativity. It's the warden who should be the hero of this story. You talk and you use the word courage to stand up for these sorts of things. And we, we as a military, and, and I'm sure this is true across all militaries, place a very high premium on physical courage. The act of yes. running through fire and, and doing things that will cause us physical harm. And we talk, and I know the American Army in, in particular talks a lot about um, moral courage, but we're less apt to, to reward someone for it, or we're less apt to really highlight it in the same sort of way that physical courage yes. is highlighted. How do we as an organization do a better job of, of highlighting those those less physical aspects of courage? Honestly, I think I think we have to start shining the light on the people who champion that. You know, and and I don't just mean the technologies like the M1 carbine. I think what the Army's doing now. Putting women in combat is tremendously courageous because that bucks a 200-year tradition. And by the way, much older. You know, very, very rarely do countries let women fight only if they have to. If it's a country like Israel or the Soviet Union under siege. Uh, in what is a male-oriented force, for soldiers to champion the idea of women going in harm's way and to have to face their fellow soldiers, I think... Uh, needs to be rewarded. You know, whoever whoever is a commanding officer who sees a female soldier do as well or better than her male counterparts and promote her over them, he should be rewarded for that because he's taking on a tremendous institution. So I can hear as as we're talking here the argument from from some folks who will say that that's maybe okay for an organization that doesn't require the level of discipline say that the army does that it's, o it's okay for a Google or a Facebook or one of these sort of tech disruptor types of places to right. have this free flow of ideas and people standing up for new things and, and discipline breaks down if you're not able to, if you, if you do that in the Army. Um, and I would, ask, I would be yes. curious what your, your thoughts on that are. I, I would argue that I think that, that we need to move beyond all or nothing. We're not talking about all or nothing because even Google or even these so-called disruptive organizations, they aren't that disruptive. They have a time and a place where you can air your grievances. But it's not like the guy getting coffee at Google can go into the CEO's office any time of day and just say, dude, I got a grievance. Like that's not how it works. There's a specific time and a specific place. Uh, we had a wonderful example with the Atlantic Council where we did a, a short story writing workshop with the Marines. And it was Marines, soldiers, sailors. And what we did was, within this room, within a certain amount of time, everybody took their rank off. Now, when we left the room, everybody's rank went right back on. So what the Army's really good at is organization. So the Army can organize specific times, places, methods for creative output and for pushback with the understanding that outside those specific zones, you get in line, you follow orders. I'm curious where you see organizationally that being being done. It, does it is it something that needs to be done at the highest levels or across the entirety of the force? I think the entirety of the force. I think I think there's different ways to do that. I think, for example, in in training, whenever you're doing a, a field exercise, you need to throw in uh, a black swan. 
Uh, we're talking today about how communications are great. They let us all network, but networks get hacked, as we've just witnessed with Russia. So if I were running a training exercise, I would suddenly hack the network and then leave all the field commanders to have to think on their feet. Uh, up in the Pentagon, I would make sure that we leave time for for honest discussion. Everybody leave your rank at the door and let's all pretend that we're equals and then see what happens. And also at the at the lowest level, start now with the cadets because these are these are the future leaders and they need to know it's okay. And I think also learning from other militaries. You know, I'm loath to give the British credit for anything, but they've done a magnificent job in counterinsurgency over the years because they have traditionally allowed their field commanders much greater freedom of action, whereas we tend to micromanage and look at the difference between Malaya and Vietnam. So I think that's interesting, the the contrast between the British and the American sort of model, where you have the ability in, in the British model that you're talking about to have a little bit more decentralization, a little bit more independent uh, uh, action by those commanders that are out in the field, because it does allow creativity. It's not as hard a process to have creative new things be used or, or come no, to the No, and right? I would attribute that to communication skills. I think when the British Empire was at its height, they barely had the telegraph. So field commanders had to have freedom of action, and that just became part of their doctrine. Whereas when we stepped onto the world stage in 1945, we had telephone, telegraph. I mean, we, we could micromanage. And I think that, that and the fact that our army is based on the Prussian model so I think those two things have made us very rigid. Well, I think it's interesting because General Milley in his uh, recent uh, talk at AUSA talked about how units in the future, you know, the, the character of war will change and small elements will be out and surrounded and isolated, yeah. not just physically, but in terms of communication, like, like you were talking about, all the time. Right. And that's something right. that will be a, a constant presence in the future of warfare. And I'm curious how how these relate to championing creativity and, and allowing people the freedom of action to do the things that they need to, to do to get the job done. Well, that's what I think, for example, if you have a unit that's cut off and their communications being hacked and they have to shut down, I think it will make the commanding officer's job a lot easier to know that his CO back at HQ is going to be more lenient on him if he makes decisions that are counter to doctrine. I think there needs to be more leniency in those kinds of circumstances, you know, within within the, the large army rules, within the Geneva Convention, within the rules of war. But I do think we should make examples of flexible thinkers and reward them because we need heroes. Everybody needs a hero. You know, everybody needs an Audie Murphy. So I think we need to have the Audie Murphys of creativity within the army because they're there and, and they're waiting to be rewarded. I know growing Kind of coming up as a cadet, I was I graduated from here in 2007. There were people that were discussed in Iraq and less so in Afghanistan, but primarily in Iraq, who there were company commanders and platoon leaders that were out on their own and coming up with solutions to complex problems that they weren't trained for. Um, and I'm curious if you're seeing the ideas that were generated in Iraq and Afghanistan over the last 10 years from those through that bottom-up process being championed by, by people today. Oh, yeah. No, no. I, I, I am witnessing a, a depressionization. I'm witnessing sort of the death of the old Cold War um, ideology. Because when I was a kid, that was the army. And I think that that is the mentality of the generals today. They came up under the fold of gap. And this really was this notion of maneuver warfare. And that's all gone. And I'm seeing company commanders who came up through Iraq and Afghanistan 
much more likely to think creatively and much more likely to be flexible, which I think is great. I actually think the Army is in a really good trajectory right now. So assuming that this continues and that we're going to have to continue being innovative and creative and then have people who are championing those ideas, how do we develop that in our cadets? Both the ability to think creative and innovatively, but also the, and probably more importantly, the courage to take a good idea and run with it. I think that we need to, we need to call attention to the people who have these ideas, but I think we also need to call attention to the cadets who stand by them and we need to encourage that. You know, I think if a cadet has an idea, the instructor needs to ask, does anybody agree with that? And whoever raises their hand and then gets pressed, are you sure you agree with it? You should, yeah, and if someone says, yes, sir, I do, and I'm willing to stand by them no matter what, that should be rewarded. Well, that's all I got for you. I appreciate the time, Mr. Brooks. My pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. If you'd like to find additional research, op-eds, and other original ideas from the Modern War Institute, please visit the War Council blog at mwi.usma.edu or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find new episodes of the Modern War Institute podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. For the Modern War Institute, I'm Captain Jake Moraldi. I hope you'll join us next time for more in-depth discussions on war, policy, and leadership.